0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And I am here tonight with my dear colleague, friend, and co host Mike Yuseem. <laughs> That's Jeff Klein, <laughs> Executive Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. And Mike Yuseem is off tonight. Tonight, in the first hour, we're going to have opportunity to talk to Dolly Chug, and I'm going to make sure that I've pronounced that name correctly when I have our guest on air. And Dolly is a psychologist and associate professor of management and organizations at NYU, New York University Stern School of Business. And Dolly studies a subject uh, dear to my heart, and that is how and why most of us, however well intended, are still prone to race and gender bias. And she's going to talk to us about her new book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Well, Jeff, you know, we have Dolly on the line, so why don't we bring her right on? Dolly, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jeff.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. And and I ask you about the pronunciation of your last name because I want to get it right, but also Mm -hmm. because my last name has a similar tricky spelling. It's Mm. Mm G-R-E-E-N-H-A-L-G-H. And people never know what to do with that G-H at the end. Now, Jeff's going to chime in here. No, I'm good. (laughs) You're good? I'm good. You're not going to make fun of me, Jeff? Um, I would (laughs) never. Not yet. (laughs) I would never do such a thing. How about last week when I called the football players Lockers Cubbies?
2: Uh, well, that, <laughs> I, it was. I was teasing the term, not the person. Okay,
0: all right, very good. <laughs> so, well, your pronunciation was was right on. Shogu. Oh, great! I do the hard G, and it sounds like you do the softer. Sil- yes, yeah, silent, silent or softer?
1: Yes, exactly. Softer. <clears throat>
0: yeah, exactly. We uh, the G H throws people off because there's so many variations.
1: Exactly. Well, Dolly, tell tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write your book. Oh,
0: yeah. You know, and it, it I'm as an academic, I study unconscious bias. That's my uh, intellectual interest. But as a human being in the world, like in a dynamic, complicated, very quickly changing world, I feel like I'm kind of grappling and struggling and trying to figure out what to say and trying basically not to step in it day in and day out. And um, those of us who are in front of students on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. younger people, um, I think it becomes particularly salient that in some ways the students are ahead of us on these issues. And so Mm -hmm. this book came out of a place of wanting to take the scholarship that I knew I and others are doing that sits in our peer-reviewed academic journals, but doesn't really reach a broader audience, Mm -hmm. and bring it, bring those tools, bring those lessons and strategies to people like me who are grappling in the real world, trying to figure out what does it mean to um, to be an egalitarian? What does it mean to promote equality? And what is the difference between equality and equity? All these questions and uh, how, to, how to foster diversity and inclusion in the spaces we care about, these are things I wanted to do better at. And I, I felt like as a scholar, I could help with a book, and as a human being, I could benefit from that book.
1: Oh, very good. Well, let me just say a little bit about why uh, I picked up your book and why it was uh, of such interest to me. Um, my, Jeff knows I have some jogging running partners, and mm. one of them is Marcy, who's a clinical psychologist, and it's very okay. helpful to jog with a clinical psychologist. <laughs> Just let me say, for listeners out there, that's a free tip. <laughs>
0: oh, that could get me to take up jogging. And really. But one of
1: the things Marcy and I talk about is our uh, perennial desire to be our best self. And in fact, mm. Jeff, you'll remember, Mike often asks us when the New Year's show rolls around, what is our New Year's resolution? And in the past, <laughs> I have said, you know, to try to be my best self. Mm-hmm. So your your book spoke to that because I'm often uh, struck by the gap between the reality and the yeah. ideal. And moreover, I am one of the lead teachers of our inter- introductory leadership course for all incoming students and freshmen. And one of the components, one of the sections is a unit on unconscious bias. So mm-hmm. as a teacher and a practitioner, for all the reasons you said, I just thought I need to know how to do this a little a little bit better.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I feel it uh, very much in the, all the same ways you do, and particularly that gap you spoke of. I feel like my gap is the Grand Canyon sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's just <laughs> amazing the the stupid things I sometimes say or the, Ways in which I confuse two people of the same race who look nothing alike for each other. I mean, just yeah. all the ways in which I step in it on a pretty regular basis. Um, this this was sort of like my my, my uh, self-help approach.
1: So good. Now, Jeff, let me bring you in here <laughs> so I don't dominate the conversation with Dolly. <laughs> so,
2: Dolly, I, I, I see here in your bio, and I'm sure we're going to get into um, the... The content of the book, but I, I can't help but ask. I, I see that uh, um, in addition to teaching in Stern's MBA program, um, you're also teaching in the NYU Prison Education Program. Uh, yeah. I, I'd yeah. love for you to tell us a a little bit about the Prison Education Program, as well as um, what kind of drew you to that work.
0: Thank you. Um, I'd love to. So uh, the Prison Education Program, the one the one I am the one I have taught in, and I hope to teach in again. At NYU is housed within an actual men's prison in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. It's called Wallkill Correctional Facility, hmm. and the courses that we teach there are four credit courses. So this is courses that um, the incarcerated students are taking towards an associate's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the The students apply into the program. There's a A set of faculty at NYU from across the university. So everything from like English and um, urban planning to art to my field of management and leadership, um, we each bring in a different sort of set of curriculum into the prison. Um, What drew me to it was I, a few years ago, was reading an op-ed, like something that showed up, I think, in my social media feed um, from a professor uh, who published an op-ed with the headline, "Um, My Best Students Are Inmates. Mm -hmm. And she's a philosophy professor. It was in the Washington Post, I believe. And she described this experience. And I I was just blown away by it. It never occurred to me that this was a place where I could take something that I care deeply about, which is teaching. And I think it's a skill in a craft that I've worked really hard to to hone over the years, and bring it to a population where it could potentially have even more impact than it has in the MBA classroom. Um, it took me a couple of years to find the opportunity to actually teach in a prison. It's not it's not as easy to get into a prison mm-hmm. um, and teach there as it might appear to be. Um, and then when. When it finally did come together, it was one of those things where I had literally talked to people in Boston and LA and DC, and like I was talking to anyone I could network my way to about this, and then ultimately the person they sent me to was about a two-minute walk from my office. <laughs> um, as these things go, it sounds I wasn't like an aware. academic journey. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I wasn't aware that simultaneous with my efforts, there was another group of. Um, ambitious faculty who were actually getting a program off the ground right at NYU. Um, it's been an amazing experience. It, I will second the headline in the Washington Post, but my I have amazing students um, within the MBA program that I teach in, but none mm-hmm. have compared to the level of curiosity and commitment and passion and preparation for class of my incarcerated students. It was um the peak professional experience of my life, and um, I was doing—I was actually doing that while I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. I was on sabbatical, and those were my two top priorities: was the book and the teaching. Um, now, what I'm doing there is uh, running a book club that meets three times a year, mm-hmm. where I pick a nonfiction book, where I can recruit the author to join me at the prison. Oh, nice. Um, mm-hmm. We have students. This is like an extracurricular activity. They're not getting college credit for this but um so they voluntarily sign up they read the book in advance and then the author and i go up there and we have a three-hour book club discussion and they've been all three authors that i've taken so far have said it's been one of the most fulfilling and um sort of mind opening eye-opening experiences of their careers
2: and and i just uh, maybe ask one follow-up um well it's a it's, I'm being sneaky because it's like a two part
0: question <laughs> oh.
2: described it as one follow up yeah. um, you know I, I'd be curious about um, what you learned about yourself through that process and mm-hmm. and really what you learned about the the inmate population that you might not have known
0: yeah what I learned about my students was they were strikingly normal mm-hmm. like this this I actually talk about this a little bit in the book when I I get into um, ways in which we unintentionally dehumanize or otherize other groups, there's no doubt in my mind in hindsight, um, and this 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 will reveal something I learned about myself, uh, that in hindsight, I went into that prison very much hoping to be, expecting to be a savior and expecting to kind of sail in and Help these troubled young men it's, it's a men's prison um, uh, and they weren't all young, so these troubled men uh, redeemed themselves and I, I you know it was very much a kind of white hat you mm-hmm. know uh, narrative that I somehow had swimming through my mind and well, th- what i what I learned about myself is I'm a little too hooked on that narrative. I need to let that go um, and what I learned about my students is they didn't need to be saved yeah. and and they um, they 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 were they're just really similar to my other students that that they're like some are funny some are serious some are more prepared some are less prepared some are you know super um, talkative and have to kind of be like you know you get to dial down their airtime a little bit and some you have to pull out in class like they were just really ordinary, normal people and had some of them done some terrible things that had really ruined lives yeah some of them had um had some of them done some not so horrible things or perhaps been you know caught up in an unfair justice system that landed them there that was also true uh and it was just from the standpoint of realizing that there is a stunning amount of normalcy behind bars that was really shocking to me and um, i went in very fearful of my students like i was you know, kind of I would go in like in a full body sweat, like literally I'd have Mm -hmm. those like big stains under my arms because I'd be sweating (laughs) so much because I was genuinely physically afraid to be like me and these 20 men in the room by myself. Um, And by the third class, I had zero fear at all. Like, in fact, the opposite. I had a sense that if God forbid something were to happen, any one of those men would stand in front of me to protect me. (laughs) <laughs>
1: That's beautiful. Beautiful yeah. story. Ah. Oh. Let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132, powered by the Wharton School. And we are speaking with Dolly Chug, and Dolly is the author of The Person You Mean to Be: How Good People Fight Bias. Dolly, uh I might just like to maybe start a little bit at the beginning here. Uh, some of the terms that uh, you use and we tend to use in academic circles, unconscious bias, implicit association. Would you just help us think through those uh, those terms?
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the unconscious and um, implicit part, for, for the sake of this conversation, we can kind of view those as interchangeable terms. And the way to think about it is that in any given moment, um, like if I were to snap my fingers, I don't think you can hear my snap, but I just snapped my fingers. (laughs) We got it. We got it. Do you get it? Okay. Here, I'm Um, going to
2: amplify it.
0: (laughs) That's good. Very good, Jeff. Really make it very, very momentous. Um, In that moment of a snap, uh, some scientists have estimated that we have 11 million pieces of information flowing into our mind. And that sort of sounds like an outlandish number until you really break it down. And you think about, well, gosh, all the colors I'm perceiving in the world around me, the words I'm perceiving, the fact that I'm sitting and I know to sit and not lie down. And I I can, I can, know what words are coming out of my mouth. Like there's a whole bunch of mental processing going on right now. And so when you think about it, maybe 11 million actually doesn't seem so crazy. Um, only 40 pieces of those information are being processed in a way where I'm like, paying attention to it and consciously processing that information. And so you've got this amazing capacity of the human mind to do a whole lot of work on autopilot. Mm -hmm. Basically, that 11 million is just happening without me intending or deliberately putting out effort to make it happen. And we see it all the time. Like if if you have listeners who drive home from work, then, you know, sometimes after a busy day at work, you you walk in the door at home and you realize you don't even remember the drive home. Like it was, Mm -hmm. your mind was just so busy that you don't remember if you had red lights or green lights or any of that. It just was autopilot. And it's sort of amazing how much we can do you leveraging that, that part of our minds. What that helps us see is that our mind is relying on a whole lot of shortcuts to do that kind of work, like in low power mode, the way our phone does low power mode. And so a tremendous amount of our mental functioning we now know based off of about 50 years of um, research across the social sciences, a a, a tremendous amount, perhaps the majority of our mental functioning is happening outside of our awareness or we might say in an unconscious um, uh, frame of mind. And what unconscious bias or implicit bias is referring to is some of those shortcuts that are taking place that we're not even aware of. There could be mental associations, I, things, ideas in our mind that are paired together. Like if I say peanut butter, you say... Jelly. Jelly, right? <laughs> right. And that just pops out of somewhere. Right. And you weren't born knowing that. At some point you learned that, but mm-hmm. most of us don't remember when we learned that. It, it, and, but we learned it if, if we grew up in the United States, that's sort of a cultural thing that we breathed in since we were born that we just now pair those ideas together in our minds, peanut butter and jelly. And there's other associations that are also paired in our minds. Um, And what unconscious measures of unconscious or implicit bias are trying to measure is what are those peanut butter jelly like associations that we haven't consciously put in our minds, that we haven't necessarily endorsed, that we aren't. seeing as, uh, in, with, you know, within our awareness, but they may be sitting in our minds and potentially leaking into our behaviors. Um, and we can talk more about what some of those specific associations are, but just at a, at a definition level, that's what we're talking about with unconscious or implicit bias.
1: Oh, very good. Uh, one illustration, and I know this is very familiar to you, but might be interesting to listeners just to think of it this way. If you words and colors are so tightly associated so the color red if but if i write the word red in the color blue it's going to be hard for me to say to identify the color as blue when i see that word red yeah (laughs) it's excruciatingly difficult to (laughs) disassociate The color from from the word. So I've I found in working with students that sometimes that's just sort of a a neutral way of introducing this idea of those of those tight associations. So just to give um, some illustrations, some common illustrations of tight associations that reflect a kind of culturally inherited bias uh, bias. What what might a few be? Just for Uh, listeners.
0: Of the actual, yeah. So in the United States, we see um, some tight associations amongst many, but not all, Americans between white people and positive words Mm -hmm. and black people and negative words, Mm -hmm. Um, between black people and um, violent images or harmful objects like guns, Mm -hmm. Um, between white people and intelligence and black people or Hispanic people and lack of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, On the gender side, we see males associated with leadership, with work, with career, with math and science. And we see women associated with the home, with family, with the humanities um, and not with leadership. And so these Examples, and there's many more that have been measured, there's, there's specific what are called IATs, or implicit association tests, mm-hmm. where you can measure how quickly people associate these ideas, just like the red color and the red mm-hmm. word, how quickly you associate those. Um, you can do a similar thing with some of the concepts I just listed. And listeners who are interested in seeing, trying this out for themselves... This uh, test is available free and anonymous online at, uh, the URL is implicit.harvard.edu and that's a research website where you you don't have to enter any information about yourself. you just go in as an anonymous guest and you can pick whatever topics interesting to you like race or gender or sexual orientation or There's other ones that are about, like, PC versus Apple or Coke versus Pepsi. (laughs) Um, So you can pick whatever topics of interest. You need about 10 uninterrupted minutes, and you'll just be sitting there pecking away at your keyboard as quickly as you can, almost like you're playing a video game, to see how quickly you associate ideas with each other. And then at the end, you get a score. And I encourage uh, people to take the test more than once on different days. Average your scores. You know, it's not a perfect test. It's not a perfect score but that you can see a pattern emerge if you if you take it a couple of times.
1: Oh, very good. So you've said a lot there, Dolly. So let me come back to that, but first remind listeners that you're listening to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM XM Business Radio, Channel 132. All right, Dolly, since this is Leadership in Action, and you've mentioned important categories here, for example, uh, black, white, male, female, uh but I also appreciate that you mentioned Pepsi and Coke, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because your, that illustration reminds us that um, predispositions to see uh, things, groups in particular ways, happens whenever we have groups. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, it, this is about the big ticket items, so to speak, but also yeah. about any kind of differentiation.
0: Um, yes, that's right. That's right. And we, we we associate things with groups and we tend to categorize things. Like that, those are the shortcuts that help us do all that autopilot work that our minds do. do is it, it relies a lot on categories. So some of those categories happen to be social categories, right. groups of people as well. What's interesting about it, though, Anne, is that um, some, one, one expectation or one hypothesis might be that we're going to have positive associations with our own group. Mm. So we're going we're gonna to have all these, like, group-level things going on, but that our own group will be favored in our own minds. Um, but that's not actually what the data says. The, the data is actually different than that. It says that the, the associations we – these implicit associations we have are more uh, what Professor Mazarin Banaji calls, like, a thumbprint of the culture around us. Mm. And sometimes the culture around us is not supportive of our own group. And so, for example, women show just as strong, if not stronger, implicit gender bias as men. Right. right. Even when it doesn't favor their own group. Um, black Americans show implicit race bias. Um, that is not the mirror image of the implicit race bias white Americans show. You would think white Americans would favor their group, black Americans would favor their group, but rather we see white Americans, the vast majority show implicit bias favoring their group, whereas black Americans are split, mm-hmm. um, kind of half showing bias favoring their own group and half showing bias favoring whites. Uh, again, some print of the culture around them where there's a lot of negativity associated with
1: African-Americans in the United States. Mm. Dolly, we're up on a break, but I'm wondering, Jeff, do you have a quick question you'd want to slip in here before the break? <laughs> or not?
2: There are no quick questions, but yeah. we'll start here. How
1: about that? Yeah.
2: Dolly, um, one of the things that brought me a lot of joy uh, about your book is you use you use one of my favorite terms. And I guess it's not even a term. It's like a suffix or something, but you use, you use the term ish. <laughs> Ish, right? And so the title of the book is, mm-hmm. you know, how good people fight bias. But really, what you're encouraging us to become are good-ish people. And yes, and mm-hmm. w- would you? Uh, I'll tell you about my relationship with Ish after the break. I <laughs> um, <but> can't
0: wait. <laughs> yeah. W- will you
2: tell us about why that distinction is important?
0: Yes. So what we know is that. Uh, based off of all the kind of data we have About things like unconscious bias There is no perfection out there There is no bias free person And so um, many of us Care about being good people We like to see ourselves as good people But we've got this like scientifically Impossible definition of being a good person Which is that we're bias free we, we say you're, you're a sexist or you're not You're a racist or you're not You're a homophobe or you're not And that that's just puts us in a very tight corner with like a closed window. There's no room to grow there because we all want to be seen as good people, but good people never make mistakes according to our narrative. And so uh, we, we end up just denying our mistakes when we make them instead of growing from them. Um, Goodish people. I'm, I'm offering goodish people. That's a higher standard. Goodish people (laughs) make mistakes, but learn from them. Goodish people are works in progress. Goodish people um, have a mindset around growth when when they make mistakes, rather than a mindset around defending themselves when they make mistakes. So I too love all the power of the ish.
1: So great! All right, it's, Jeff, we're going to pause there. It's so quick. Okay, go. So quick. Go.
2: Do you do you know the children's book ish? No. Oh, this is going to it. bring you such joy. Yeah, Peter Reynolds. Really? Um, okay. It, it, it's it's a book about um, art and creativity. Um, but it's called Ish, and it, uh, uh, just to say a word about it, it, it's about a boy who wants to draw, and he's frustrated with what he's drawing, and he, it's illustrated, and he's, throw, you know, he's throwing away these drawings, and his sis, he catches his little sister sneaking into the room and um, stealing one of these you know, crumbled up drawings on the ground mm-hmm. and runs back to uh, her room, and so he chases her down, and he goes in and sees that all of oh. um, <laughs> these drawings have been taped up on her wall.
0: Oh, y'all are gonna make me cry. Yeah, All right, so, go to really? break so I can cry. Yeah, go to break. Ish
2: Peter Reynolds.
0: Oh, I will, I'm gonna one-click it while we're on break. All right, okay. fantastic. <laughs> and
1: great question, Jeff. <laughs> and great, great example. <laughs> Beautiful, uh, Dolly. Jeff and I do want to, um, you know, have some illustrations, anecdotes, but I, I have to ask you an academic question though before we. Dive in, and that is about the implicit association test that uh, you've recommended to our listeners. And I, I would back that. I ask all of our students in our foundation leadership course to take the take the test as well. Uh, but the test is not without controversy. Could you mm-hmm. say a little bit about, um, you know, what the, what the what the pros and the cons are?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So the test is. is a, it's a measure and it's not, no measure is perfect. Uh, you know, any any measure of any um, phenomena in the real world has got some measurement issues and some noise in it. And so this is a test that was developed in the late 90s and it's been continually um, enhanced since then. There's been several thousand, I, I mean, I've lost count of how many thousands, but thousands of Peer review papers, academic yeah. papers that have used and improved upon um, the implicit association test. The issues that still remain um, that I suspect will continue to be improved in the coming years. One is how do we know the extent to which our implicit biases are affecting or leaking into our actual behaviors? Yeah. Um, so there are definitely studies that are showing a leak, a link. Um, they tend to be, those links tend to be more behaviors that are, I always get downstream or upstream confused, but like whichever one of those is like, for example, like nonverbals, how, how far I sit from you, how I, how long I smile, how much eye contact I give you, things like that have been shown to be, um, uh, connected to the implicit bias you carry your perception of the nonverbals of other people, has been shown, and there's been other measures that have shown that it's affecting things like doctors' uh, judgments mm-hmm. and diagnosis decisions and, um, and prescription decisions and things like that, but there have been uneven findings right. there. So that's one place where I think kind of nailing down mm-hmm. when and where and how implicit bias affects behavior is an important thing. Um, another place is in um, figuring out the reliability of it, and that's mm-hmm. why I do suggest that people take the test more than once so mm-hmm. that we do know that if, for example, right before you take the test, mm-hmm. you let's say you're taking the race IET, you I say, okay, I want you to think about Nelson Mandela, and like really lose yourself mm-hmm. thoughts about Nelson Mandela. Um, that we know that will actually change. Chances are, most people have positive views of uh President Mandela, and chances are that will lead to a more positive. Uh, well, I shouldn't say positive for and more uh, a race IAT score that is uh, more in favor, uh, showing positive associations with blacks. Um, what we also know, though, is that as soon as you finish that test and stop thinking about Nelson Mandela, your scale, your your score kind of rebounds to mm-hmm. where it was. So, this reliability of the test and the test retest is another place where we need to keep pushing.
1: Yeah. And I think that's um, important to say just for everyone out there as we are trying to be as goodish as we can be. Uh, Awareness is one step, just simply recognizing that we are all in this together and that we are all (laughs) goodish, trying to be (laughs) the best person that we can be. And that there may be a difference between um, our, our predisposition, our bias, and then our action and behavior.
0: Right, right, absolutely. And in fact, that's where there's a lot of reason to be optimistic is that we don't actually know yet how to de-bias ourselves. Like we don't, we haven't, social social psychologists haven't cracked the code on that. But what we do know is that we can set up systems around us that help de-bias our behavior and be, de-bias our decisions. So if we know that we're being while we're screening resumes, right. that, that, that gender... We, we have lots of data from lots of studies um, that show that the gender of the applicant, the, the marital status of the applicant, the race, ethnicity of the applicant, the address of the applicant, the, the whether they're a parent, I mean, all these things affect uh, our, our screening decisions independent of the actual content of the resume. If we know that, let's just cover up their names. Let's just cover up their addresses. <laughs> So that's an example of a way where you can use a system or a process to de-bias our behaviors, even if we can't de-bias ourselves.
1: Yeah, I'm going to hand to Jeff and just uh, say that I think that's a wonderful illustration, especially here on leadership in action, because... You help make the connection to the workplace, and just simply in the recruiting process, as we're looking for talent, what can we begin to do in a systematic and structural way that will help us find talent in all diverse sorts, all places? So, yeah. Jeff, let me bring you in.
2: Awesome. So, Dolly, um, I, I'll make a leap, but you can you can tell me if my leap is uh, in error. One of probably the dominant conversation that happens here at the university, whether it's with undergraduate students with graduate students, and, and my leap is I'm, I'm guessing you're experiencing this at NYU as well. But it's this conversation around what what equity and inclusion and belonging really mean, yeah. right? And and what it means to live it, what it means to want it, um, uh, what it means to kind of commit to or, or dedicate yourself to it and, and this framework that you've offered of you know a, a goodish becoming a good ish person um, provides some um, pretty tangible steps that the individual can take. And so I, I would love to spend a you know a number of minutes here and just get your advice both you know for me as a person in this world um, and, and for our listeners as well if, if we want to embark on this journey, um, what are some of the, the steps that you'd recommend?
0: Absolutely. Um, So I think the the first step is adopting, uh, I'm going to use a little bit of academic jargon, but then we can get concrete about it, adopting a growth mindset. So Mm -hmm. that's Carol Dweck, a psychologist at Stanford's term for a belief that I can get better and that I have room to improve in a particular domain Mm -hmm. so when you have a growth mindset about you know let's say you know drawing to use the example of the little boy in the book (laughs) um, when you have a growth mindset about drawing you might look at your stick figures and say they're terrible or you might be scared to even put a pencil to the paper or the crayon to the paper because you you just feel you're gonna be terrible but in a growth mindset, you persist through that. You mm-hmm. keep trying to get better, or you let somebody coach you, or you look at your mistakes and, and see ways they could be better. Or you might think, I'm a great drawer. I, I, Nobody's stick figures are better than mine. But in a growth mindset, you still believe you could be even better. You don't see yourself as having nothing to learn.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The contrast to a growth mindset is a fixed mindset where – you view yourself as having nothing to learn or having um, um, having no ability to learn. And I think on these issues of diversity, inclusion, bias, race, gender, as a country um, and as a society, we have gotten ourselves into a fixed mindset. Yeah. We've gotten ourselves into a space where we think we should, we should already know how to do this. Mm-hmm. We're not allowed to make mistakes. We should, we should already know how to be a good person. And we, um, if we make a mistake, that's it. I'm, I'm, I've just fell off the cliff, the good person cliff, and that's a, um, a really destructive, a really destructive way to approach any of these issues. Whether you're an individual or you're a boss or you're a company, I don't think any diversity training program in the world is going to have do anything if we're doing it in a fixed mindset. And so I think the first place to start, and that's my book, it starts with this, is that we adopt this belief that whether we're terrified, we're terrified, we we, we change the topic whenever something related to race comes up, or whether we think, oh, I'm so woke, I kind of have this. I don't know where you guys have been, but, you know, I've been in this conversation a long time. Um, Wherever you see yourself that you – Imagine that there is still more to learn and grow, and um, that begins. I think that's where everything has to begin because without it, we uh, we we're just gonna we are gonna make mistakes. And when we do, this gets into our good versus goodish. We're just gonna shut down. I just right before getting on this call, actually earlier this afternoon, I I do a Forbes.com piece every month, and I just published my December piece. And I focused on the, um, the chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, uh, Tim Ryan. And he's someone who three years ago says he was scared to death to talk about race. Mm-hmm. Like that would be the topic he would avoid. Um, and now today, three years later, he's not only talking very openly about race and, and sort of its complexity and its difficulty, the, having difficult conversations about it within his firm, He's actually engaging CEOs in other companies, 500 other companies across mm. the U.S., trying to push them to start talking about race as well. And so he's a great example of the, the power of a growth mindset to push through the discomfort, to push through the mistakes and the pain, and get to a place where you act, can actually do something, um, but only if you view yourself as able to learn in that space.
1: Mm. Dolly, I'm going to hand back to Jeff, but just let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Jeff, so
2: Dolly, one of the um, one of the things that that comes up for me when we when we talk about growth mindset versus fixed mindset um, is, you know. Kind of how can you tell how do you monitor yourself? what does it look like behaviorally and and so, for you know I'll make it simple for either parents who are watching their kids or kids who are watching their parents um, <laughs> what is it what is it that you might look at to see um, you know what what are the behaviors that someone in a in a growth yeah. mindset are are, are going to exhibit?
0: yeah, well, when you're in a growth mindset, you take chances, so okay. the behavior might be that. Um, If you're let's just stick with the talking about race example Um, In a growth mindset, you would uh, be willing to have that conversation, even if you felt uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in a fixed mindset, you would change the topic or now would be a good time to hit the restroom or, you know, you would find a way out of that conversation or you would just stay very quiet in the conversation, not because you were listening deeply, but because you were playing it safe.
2: Got it. That that's a, a great metaphor of taking some risk and taking some some chances yeah. there. Um okay. So if we're if we're at step one and we are mm-hmm. willing to take some chances and take some risks and you know, step into spaces which are uncomfortable as opposed to yeah. retreat for them or assign them to someone else. What um yeah. what comes next?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, just, I'm it's feeling like it's gonna, <laughs> it's, it's gonna be a journey. <laughs> it's gonna be a journey
0: that never ends. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> yes. So so what comes next is that you're going to start to see, if, if you're like me, which, mm-hmm. which um, uh, I, 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 maybe some people are more advanced in this, but you start to see stuff that makes you feel like, yuck, like, oh, God, I mm-hmm. thought I thought I earned this. I worked hard for this. And then you start to realize all these ways in which systems around you kind of worked in your favor and against other people. So, mm-hmm. for example, I... Um, I played a varsity sport in college and I, when I was interviewing senior year for jobs coming out of college, I I got a lot of job interviews. I didn't have a hard time getting interviews. You know, just my resume had a varsity sport. I was co-captain like that. That just seemed to invite recruiters to want to talk to me. And so I was feeling like pretty awesome about that. And like, you know, I did, I, 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 I must be, you know, pretty impressive. Right. Well, but I had a roommate who worked 25 hours a week, and um, there's no way she could have worked 25 hours a week and played a college sport. Hmm. But mm-hmm. if she had been interviewing for the same jobs as me, she would not have gotten them. She wasn't interviewing for the same jobs as me, but if she had been, she, she no, I know she would not have gotten the mm-hmm. same callbacks I was getting. That's a systemic bias that's working against someone who, who needed to have that job in order to pay her tuition and working in favor of someone like me who didn't need to have a job. I, I didn't have to work while I was in college, and not only that, I could go play a sport um, with my free time. And so a systemic bias like that is working against um, people who are not from affluent families or um, even middle-class families. It's working probably working against people who are um, people of color like there's all sorts of ways in which those systems were benefiting me. And when I say that you're going to see things, that's going to make you go, ah, you know, that's an example of like, gosh, darn it. I thought I earned that. Like, mm-hmm. I really thought that was me. Um, and there's a whole bunch of examples in the world around us of what Debbie Irving calls headwinds and tailwinds. Yeah, I love that They're, expression. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it great? Yeah. And as, as a runner, I'm sure you can relate <laughs> to that when you're running into a headwind, yeah. it's. It's so visible, not visible, but so feelable, Um, and yet tailwinds we don't feel at all when we're running. They just, you know, we just think we're rocking it, like having a great running day, Um, and so the tailwinds in our lives don't easily present themselves to us, Um, and then we see people who don't have those tailwinds, and we think, oh, God, they're not quite as motivated, or they're not quite as talented as I am, or, you know, we make all sorts of attributions not taking into account all these Systemic things. So that's the next step after growth mindset is okay. Now you're going to see some stuff. Are you going to shut down or are you going to use that growth (laughs) mindset? You're going to use your super superpower growth mindset to be like, okie dokie. So now things get real. What am I going to do? What am I going to acknowledge about how I got here? Mm.
2: And. Dolly, I, I, um, first of all, thank you for using you know some of your own examples and and bringing yeah. this to life in that way. It, if I can ask you a, just a question about this, which which is either for you or just in your experiences, um, you know, you've talked with people about this process. Is that noticing of systemic bias or of, you know privilege or headwinds and tailwinds, however we want to frame it? Is, mm-hmm. is it work you can do on your own? Is it is it hmm. work that's best done with others?
0: Yeah, I. I think that my guess is, and I haven't tested this, but my guess is it varies person to person. Um, I've gotten uh, lots of amazing notes from people who've read the book um, and seem to have done it on their own from what I could tell from Mm -hmm. their notes and have reached some real learning and realizations that they didn't have before just through a deep dive in their own reflections. But I've also been hearing from book clubs and kind of community read type organizations where people are doing this in tandem with each other and creating a shared vocabulary like headwinds and tailwinds. And so I I think a lot of it depends on how you learn. What I would say, what I would recommend though is as you learn, the more you can make your learning visible to others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it takes a little courage to get to that point, but when you get there, you realize the world doesn't stop spinning because you admitted that you benefited from some systemic bias. You're like, you say it and you think, oh, my God, now are they just going to yank me out of like every job I've ever thought I earned. Like, no, no, everyone just sort of like nods their head and you keep going. Um, when you make your learning visible to others, it really motivates and inspires other people to do it. It, it helps move people from that fixed mindset to the growth mindset when, when you when you show yourself as a learner. So that's the piece that regardless of whether you learn on your own or you learn in tandem with others, the more you can then make it visible, I think the more powerful it is. That's super.
1: Yeah. You know, one, one of the discoveries that I made, uh, I made along the way and many more up ahead. And I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I, I had a realization that uh, headwinds and tailwinds, again, are not necessarily either or, but rather uh, they, they can be a headwind in one situation and a tailwind in another. So Hello. with my students, for example, and Jeff, you'll s- smile at me, and I might get in trouble with the dean when I say this, but the word Wharton, the word Wharton, mm-hmm. when I am abroad, on oh. those few occasions when I've been to China <laughs> mm-hmm. with my okay. colleagues and worked with Chinese executives at the uh, Wharton Chin- Penn Wharton China Center, I am on a tailwind. (laughs) They don't care whether or not, now, Dolly, I'm not even five feet. Talk about leadership. Uh They don't care how tall I am, male, female. Uh I have the word Wharton behind me. And suddenly I am elevated up. Yeah. But now bring us back home. And the students always smile when I say this. We have four undergraduate schools. We have Uh the College of Arts and Sciences, the Nursing School, the Engineering School, and the Wharton School. And one year, our clever undergrads created Uh T-shirts, Harry Potter Uh T-shirts. Guess who was Gryffindor? Guess who Uh was Hufflepuff? Guess who was Ravenclaw? And guess who was Slytherin?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: All right, so Warden showed up as Slytherin on that T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. interesting that in some circumstances you can you can have a headwind, and in other circumstance you might have a tailwind.
0: <laughs> that's, that's so true, and it, it really speaks to these are systems we build, right? But and by systems, I could, it can could mean everything from like actual institutions and systems to just cultural norms and like what do we value and who do we put up on a pedestal and who do we kind of uh, look down our noses at. And that's all, that all comes from us. It's all human-made and and can be human-changed as well. So what a great example of how true that is. <laughs>
1: oh, that's so good. Well, now, Dolly, we're coming up to the last few minutes, and I'm sorry that we only have an hour together. Jeff and I were saying that we could spend two hours with you. We see that <laughs> really clearly. But uh, as we think about uh, leadership, what, what advice might or thoughts, reflections, tips might you give our listeners as they try to go forward in the world of work
0: yeah, and keep in yeah. mind
1: this notion of unconscious bias.
0: Yeah. I, so my, after, after spending the last three years in this space, I think where I am coming out is let's give ourselves room to grow. Um, the metaphor that I've found so powerful for this is when it comes to technology, we all just assume we have to be continuous learners and growers, right? Like Mm -hmm. none of us assume that what we knew last year about how to use our phones and our TVs is going to work this year. We all have to like get our kids to show us how how do I do it this way and call the help desk and make some mistakes and right, we we check the manual. Like we just assume we have to keep learning because technology is always changing and the world around us is changing. I think that's the right mental model for Mm -hmm. what we want to be doing on issues of diversity and inclusion as leaders. We want to assume that this world is changing. It's changing quickly. It's okay if we don't know everything right in this moment. What we do need to do is continue to upgrade our knowledge, talk to the experts, find someone younger to give us a different perspective, look stuff up, keep reading. All the same things we do with technology will help us here.
1: Very good. Now, quickly, where can people learn more about your book, The Person You Mean to Be?
0: Ah, well, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, many independent bookstores, wherever you like to buy books. It's on Kindle, it's on Audible, as well as hardcover. Um, So that's a great place to start. And um, if uh, people want to see sort of the shorter TED Talk version of it, there's something, there's a 12-minute version of it up on the TED website as well.
1: Oh, so good. And with thousands and thousands of (laughs) views, too, as well. Yeah. Very good. Well, Dolly Chug, thank you so much for being our guest tonight on Leadership in Action.
0: Thank you for having me. This was a complete joy. I'm so glad.
1: We hope to cross paths with you again.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.